I'm Alex Pong. I'm the author of Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. And this is Miriam Shulman's Inspiration Place podcast. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world inside a podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Hi there, this is Miriam Shulman, your host of the Inspiration Place podcast. And today we're going to dive deep on why restorative naps long walks, vigorous exercise, and lengthy vacations all help creative people do their best work. My guest today is an expert on how rest plays a key role in creativity. He's the author of Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, as well as the founder of The Restful Company and visiting scholar at Stanford University. His book, Rest, is about the hidden role that rest plays in the lives of successful artists, musicians, writers, scientists, and thought leaders. Drawing on neuroscience, psychology, and history, his research demonstrates that many accomplished people use rest in ways that help them be more creative and that we can understand why their practices work and adapt them to our own busy lives. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Alex Ping. Welcome, Alex. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join us here today. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be with you. First of all, I have a ton of questions. I'm really happy that this book came out. It actually helped reaffirm me as a mother because previously (laughs) uh, I live in a very competitive town in Mm -hmm. the backyard of New York. I'm sure you can relate. There's plenty of competitive towns in California where you live. And the mothers love to brag to each other how late their kids stay up so they can complete all their honors coursework. And in my house, my kids like to go to bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm talking about my 18-year-old and now 20-year-old. They, they like to go to bed by 10 o'clock. And my son likes to take naps. And after I read your book, and it says, well, you know, people do their best work if they only work a few hours a day. And my son goes, yeah, I always knew that. and I've been trying to share this book with my friends and they're like don't show this to my son I don't want him to know about this (laughs) so what we're going to dive into today is you really the the book is excellent because first of all I love that it it relies on research and yet it was a very easy read because of all of the anecdotes that you're able to pull into it and different case studies of people across many disciplines, which re- really was made it very interesting. But I n- noticed you, you basically broke it down into seven key ingredients, which were the limiting how many hours you worked to maintain maximum concentration, using rituals and routines to maximize your creativity, mm-hmm. vigorous exercise and walks, sleep and naps, vacation, hobbies, and stopping points. And all of these resonate with me. And of course, we don't have time to go into everything. But I thought if we start with deliberate rest, mm-hmm. and how you define that, that would be a really great starting point. Sure. Well, yeah, deliberate rest is rest that we use in order both to recover the energy that we spend working, but also it's a kind of rest that allows our kind of creative subconscious to keep working on problems, even while we are apparently 
to the outside world and our bosses doing nothing at all, or when we're occupied with sort of other kinds of sort of often more physical or kind of semi-engaging activities. So what I found in my book, you know, I was looking at Nobel Prize winners and famous writers and artists and such, is that they had, the ones who had a lot of control over their times, gravitated toward a kind of workday where they would work several really focused intensive hours, you know, generally about four hours or five hours tops. And then they would almost immediately go out and do things that look to us to be unproductive, right? Go out on long walks or you know, go for a swim or do other, you know, other, other things like that. I mean, obviously that kind of thing is good for you generally, but it helps stimulate your creativity when you kind of layer work and rest. Because what happens is that all those ideas that were running around in your brain when you were sort of, you know, focused deeply on whatever problem you were working on, all that stuff is still in short-term memory when you go out on, you know, go out to the park or, you know, get in the water and go for a swim or, or to go for a bike ride. And so what happens is that if you do it over time, you do it consistently, your subconscious kind of learns that it's going to have this period where it can keep working on problems, even while your conscious mind is doing other stuff or apparently doing nothing at all. And it learns that this is an opportunity. This is a period where it can explore new ideas, it can try out new stuff, and very often come up with solutions to problems that had eluded your own conscious effort. And what we learn from these lives is that this kind of rest is, first of all, the best kinds of deliberate rest are active rather than passive. So, Okay, you know, so let me stop you yeah, there. Sure. So let's talk about that because... Yeah. Let's delineate the difference between rest where you're checking emails and looking at Facebook and Instagram versus mm -hmm. riding your bike, right? So, uh, playing checker, something else. Right. You know, what's the difference and why is one restful where the other one may not be? Sure. Um, what, so, you know, stuff like taking a break and checking Instagram and Facebook is a break from work in one sense, but your brain actually kind of treats it as very similar to work, right? Because you are, you're engaged, you're basically using the same parts of your brain and you're making the same kinds of social valuations or comparisons that you often do when you're working. And so it is a break from work, but it's less restorative than you might think. Got um, it. And then know. I wanted to also highlight something else that you have in your book, because here's something yeah. that I've noticed about myself. Like I said, a lot of your book was such a relief to me <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, so I'm an artist and I paint, but people who don't paint for a living will say to me, oh, you know, you must spend all day painting. And I would lie to them and say, yeah, that's right. Knowing full well, I may be spending two hours maximum because I would get exhausted mm -hmm. mentally after putting out that effort and I have to stop and, and you know, not to use the cliche, and rest. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit into that about being able to maintain the kind of focus. I know you mm -hmm. did a lot of research. I know there's a lot of art artists in your book but specifically, you mention 
writers being able to only do a few hours. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. This is one of the mysteries when I first got uh, started, which was so many of these people, whether they are you know painters or novelists or nonfiction writers or scientists, you know, would work really hard, but only work for about four or five hours. And at first I thought, well, you know, it's because these people are super geniuses, right? You know, if you're Einstein, you only need to work four hours a day in order to come up with the theory of relativity. But it was an incredibly consistent pattern. And I also found that that this is a number that you see in lots of other fields as well. So, you know, computer programmers, when they talk about how long they can sustain, you know, serious focus on, you know, sort of a piece of code that they're working on. Or musicians, when they're practicing a new piece or trying to perfect a performance, they can do about four hours of really serious, involved practice a day. And then after that, their productivity, their ability to concentrate really drops off radically. And so this seems to be a pretty consistent number across fields and with, you know, with lots of different for young people, for, you know, older people as well. You know, I think that the, you know, the key is recognizing that those, you know, if you can get four serious hours, that's actually a great day. Yes. And, you know, and then the, uh, one other yeah. thing I wanted to yeah. tell you was a big relief um, to not just to me myself, but my daughter, the 20 year old is in a conservatory <laughs> practicing cello. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you're all, it, you know, we talk about the competitiveness. There's also the musicians talking about how they spend all day, uh, you know, practicing six hours blood to get into Juilliard. And, and my daughter can't sustain that without getting an injury. She gets right. use injuries. So we love that section of the book that basically we all know because of pop psychology, the Gladwell 10,000 hours Mm -hmm. about having to practice. And what I love is that you introduce rest as a partner to the work and how important it is to rest and recover in order to make those big strides. Mm-hmm. And how important and that, that is, you know. And you know, one of the things that uh, that uh, that I argue in the book is that work and rest are not opposites, right? They're not competitors. We think of them that way, but that's incorrect. They're really partners, and each is necessary to do your best creative work, and you know, is necessary for a good life. And we even saw that in the the study that Gladwell talks about, which was you know that came up with the original ten thousand hours idea. The authors of that study also noted that the top performers at the conservatory that they were looking at, top performers slept more than the average student, partly because they would take naps during the day. And they also were better at accounting for how they spent their free time. Mm. So, you know, not only did they practice in a more intensive, deliberate way, they also rested in a more intensive, deliberate way. And the other thing with 10,000 hours is that it's 10,000 hours over the course of about 10 years, which works out to a thousand hours a year. And you figure people take some weekends off, go on vacation. That's 250 days, let's say. Right. So four hours. Four hours a day is what you need in order to be world to be a world-class violinist. And it turns out to be a world-class mathematician or writer or just about anything else. The challenge for really creative people is to organize their days 
so that they get those four hours. Let's to, talk about yeah. that because I know that you, there's a whole chapter about routines. You actually named it the morning routine, but really it's about mm-hmm. routines and rituals in general. Yeah. So let's talk about what routines play in a role in invoking the muse for creativity. <laughs> sure. You know, I think the sort of one important thing is that routines give you a way of organizing your time and sort of setting your priorities, which is sounds really straightforward, but that's actually really important. It also provides a place for, as Stephen King put it, the muse to land, right? I mean, mm. we, you know, we tend to think that the way that art works is you get inspired and you have this creative breakthrough and then you go to work and you work for sort of 18 hours on an idea. In reality, <laughs> And, you know, it it works that way sometimes. (laughs) Every now and then, you know, there's this romantic idea that creative people have this big inspiration and then you, you know, have this intense period where you work through the idea. But, you know, people who are like writers for a living or who have long creative careers discover that it's really better to flip that equation. As, uh, again, as Stephen King puts it, if you work in a regular manner, the muse will know where to find you. And the idea, you know, and his idea is, you know, rather than get inspired and start working, it's a lot more reliable to start working. And then as often as not, the inspiration comes. It's like the Picasso quote, the Picasso quote that inspiration finds you working. And I think there's a similar quote by Chuck Close. Exactly. Yes. There were that off the top of your head. Uh, you know, it's something I along the same lines and basically right, you know, that inspiration is for amateurs, exactly. and professionals go to work. So right. I, I find it absolutely true that you just kind of have to get started. Mm-hmm. And I find that very reassuring because yes. you know, the idea of, you know, the, that flash of creative, uh, you know, of lightning, you know, having to rely on that is... That, you know, that makes for a highly uncertain life. And, you know, I think the other thing that it recognizes is that an awful lot of, you know, creative work, whether you're, you know, writing a book or you're working on a painting or composing something, a lot of that work is kind of low level in the sense that what you're doing is like working out, you know, the balance of color between this part, you know, this section and this section or transitions from this part of your argument to this other part of your argument. That's not stuff that, you know, it's not like the apple falling from the tree. And, but it is a kind of creativity that you need to cultivate and exercise if you're actually going to produce work. And I think that having a routine is really useful for setting up your working life so that you give the muse a place to land. I also find it's helpful to play games with myself and kind of trick the... So so you talk a lot about in your book how if you go on walks, it lets your mind wander Mm -hmm. and and you come up with your best ideas. I love to play with my subconscious mind when I paint and I'll do that by listening to sometimes music, but even more so if I have an audio book or a podcast, Mm -hmm. it forces my conscious brain to listen and my subconscious mind can actually do the work that's in front of me. And it keeps my inner critic then from chirping in. 
Yes. Because I've occupied like a certain part of my brain with active listening. Is, have you done research on that? Certainly, there is a lot of uh, research that um, confirms the basic idea that part of what you want to do when you are engaged in creative activity is, number one, keep the inner critic at bay. And second, and one of the ways to do that is to give that critic or give your conscious, conscious mind kind of something else to work on. And for some people, that is something as simple as the background noise of a cafe, right? Some people, right. part of the reason people, some people like working in coffee houses is that there's just enough distraction from bits of conversation, you know, the sound of cutlery, you know, or of, you know, or of crockery, you know, moving around to, or of, uh, uh, for their conscious minds to kind of listen idly to that and thus give their creative minds more space to work. That's excellent. I didn't realize that was the reason. And that yeah. brings me actually to another question because there's a whole section in your book about walks and you talk about how they're, you know, like Charles Darwin and also I believe you said Beethoven, how they were known to take walks daily to come and they came up with their best ideas. Mm-hmm. So my daughter was actually, this was her question. She knows I like to listen to podcasts when I walk. Does that actually ruin what I'm trying to do on the walk, will I still come up with an idea if I'm like occupying my brain or do you need silence in those walks? I think it really depends on how much you pay attention to the podcast and how much Mm. you're able to let your mind just go. This is one of those areas where you experiment and you figure out what works for you. So, you know, for me, I have two dogs. And so, you know, I, when I'm working on a book, I get up super early, I write for a couple hours, then I take them out and I make a point of listening to like classical music, usually very simple classical music, like Goldberg variations or, you know, things without a lot of orchestration or, you know, kind of heavy ornamentation. And what that does for me is sort of provide a little bit of auditory distraction but not so much that I'm singing along or I'm paying a lot of attention to the music. And so I'm very conscious about choosing that kind of music as a kind of filter and diversion as opposed to something that I'm really going to listen to carefully. You've got to figure out what kind of music or what podcast or audio book or nothing at all works for you. And the one thing that you can say is, everyone's a little different and everyone's mileage will vary. Everyone can figure this out for themselves. One thing I also found interesting is how you talk about deliberate rest and active rest and, and recovery. And one of the tools, you, you know, speaking about music, is you said that listening to music definitely is a tool people can use to recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole like science now of psychology of music. But I think that part of what is, you know, what they found is that partly, assuming you're not a professional musician, music activates parts of the brain that you don't necessarily use in your day job as some other kind of professional. But it also does so in a way that, depending on the kind of music, you know, still gives you time to kind of free associate and mind wander. Also, at the same time can kind of hook into 
at some of the you know some of our deepest emotions and mm. you know, provide a level of kind of psychological uh, psychological booster energy that can be really valuable when you are you know trying to think hard about problems for all of these reasons music turns out to be something that um, can be super useful as a kind of creative stimulus and creative and and components of our kind of daily routines and creative environments. You talk about concentration, rituals, routines, exercise, walks, sleep, vacation, hobbies, stopping point. And yep. one thing that had come to mind, especially when you mentioned in the beginning, your inspiration was how Watson chased girls and played tennis. Well, Picasso, one of the greatest artists of the last century was also one of the greatest womanizers of the last century. So I don't know if your research goes into the role that romance, sex, and socializing has on mm-hmm. creativity. Is that a fair question to throw at you? Um, I think it's a it's a perfectly fair question. I would I uh, my reply is that people are all over the boards. You know, or if you've got people on one hand like. Picasso, who was both a not- who was a notorious womanizer and singularly bad to the people closest to him in his life. You also have at the opposite end someone like Charles Darwin, who was very happily married to Emma for decades. And then in the middle, you've got someone like Albert Einstein, who had a capacity for being really cruel to his first wife and mm-hmm. generally was pretty good to his second. And you know, his kids, it seems like he kind of ignored them. I mean, I think all too often that genius is an excuse for rather than a driver of social behavior that, yeah. you know, some people, you know, particularly, question, so, yeah. My question wasn't so, so much linking misogyny with creativity, but maybe the uh, more sexuality. So whereas, right. and hmm, so, interesting. You know, like okay. Charles Darwin was happily married. Well, okay. So I'm assuming his wife had a, he and his wife had a healthy sexual relationship. So I guess yeah. that was more where my question was like, how much, sexuality plays in creativity so that to me that i felt like that might have been that was a question mark after reading your book and also Mm -hmm. socialization in general so how much having friends and talking about your work plays a role i mean now we're already diving into some of the content but yeah yeah i mean this is this is interesting stuff to me what like the impressionists that they always surrounded themselves with their friends and they spent so much time in the cafes just talking right. about it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think that the, um, these are, uh, these are really interesting questions that are difficult to, and it's difficult to disaggregate the psychological or the sociological stuff from kind of the politics of genius and the way that people use it to excuse various kinds of bad behaviors. Mm. Um, Mm. And so, and I kind of had my hands full just making the rest argument. Um, I mean, I think there is actually a potentially super popular book about the relationship between, particularly if there's a positive relationship between sexuality and creativity. So, you know, I don't think anyone's written that book yet, but it would be a great book to write. Yes. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing now? I know you have a podcast, Rest mm-hmm. with Alex, Yep. where you're interviewing people for your next book. So w- how is that 
different? What, how's your, how are you continuing the research for your next project? So what I'm interested in now is looking at companies that are putting the ideas behind rest into practice. And in particular, I'm interested in companies that are shortening their work days, that are mm. moving, moving to four-day work weeks or six-hour, even five-hour work days. And trying to understand how it is that you know we can make rest work for companies and organizations as well as for individuals, and I think that you know the you know so much of constraints that we have that keep us from resting well or from developing better relationships between work and rest have to do with you know, the way we work at yeah. the office. Yeah. And the assumptions that, you know, our bosses have about the relationship between time and overwork and productivity. And so, you know, finding companies that have pushed back against this have shown that it's that you can go to a four-day work week and still be as productive and profitable as you ever were, but also be more sustainable. So, and by the way, by the way, so I have a, a full-time assistant. Mm-hmm. She works 30 hours a week and she doesn't come in until 10. We don't start mm-hmm. our work day till 10. And mostly that was by design because I have to exercise in the morning and I didn't want to have <laughs> to teach her. How, you know, I didn't want her showing up when I was still in my, in my sweats. Right. Uh, so she works at 10, at 10. It's in my house. So I've always told her she has to take a break from one to two. Mm-hmm. And that was because I didn't want to be responsible for eating lunch with her. <laughs> and then she works from two to six. So as you see, it's a six hour, um, two to, I'm sorry, two to, two to five. Right. It was a six hour day that doesn't start till 10. And she's so productive. Yeah. The problem I'm actually having is she's asked for more hours because she wants to make more money. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but you won't be more productive. So I'm like, I don't know. Should I just pay her more for working the same amount? <laughs> like, I think your instinct that she won't be more productive if she works more hours is probably right on. What we've seen in lots of offices is that kind of work expands, work stretches to fill time as opposed to becoming more productive or sort of generating more output in that time. I will say that one of the things that we see in these companies is that they will you know, reduce these hours without cutting pay, without cutting benefits. And they all report that productivity is as good or better as it's, you know, as it was before. And that, you know, they are sort of, they wouldn't think of going back to an eight hour day or a 10 hour day. Certainly not eight or 10. So right now she's, she's at six, she wants seven. She doesn't come in on Friday. Mm -hmm. And again, that was, uh, you know, she works from home just for two hours. And again, a lot of this was by just by convenience for me Mm -hmm. and her. And after I read your book, it's like, again, it was like, you see, this is why I'm doing everything the way I am. It's good to play tennis and only work a few hours a day. Exactly. So yeah, it's really great. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I think that my audience is going to get a lot of value from all these insights. And I fully recommend Rest. It's definitely one of the best self-development books I think I read last year. And it's in, it's in paperback now. You mm-hmm. can find the link to that on my website. It's going to be shulmanart.com forward slash rest where you can find links to 
get the book as well as how to connect with Alex and also your podcast. And be sure we'll be keeping an eye out for your next book. Well, thanks very much, Miriam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad you spent the time with me. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks again. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and it whet your appetite to go check out Alex's book, Rest. You'll find a link to that on my blog, shulmanart.com forward slash rest. And I would love to hear from you to hear what you thought. How many hours can you sustain your focus when you're creating art? Leave a comment on the blog or send me a direct message on Instagram, or you can even email me, miriam at shulmanart.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Now, if you like this episode, you're also going to like some episodes we have coming along down the pipe. I'll be speaking with business coach Kaylin Asher about how she designs her three-day work week. She's cut down her hours after the birth of her first child and discovered not only was she more productive, but she was actually more profitable when she was working less. So we talk about how artists can do that. And another episode I have planned for you is I'll be sharing with you my schedule and how I design my week and my morning routine, because I know I'm always curious to hear other people's morning routines. Speaking of missing episodes, are you subscribed to my podcast? If you're not, I want to encourage you to do that right away. I don't want you to miss any of these episodes. There are a few podcasts that I listen to religiously, and I love that I know every time they have a new episode because I get a notification right to my phone. No matter where you're listening to this episode, make sure you take the opportunity to subscribe so that when I go live, you'll know all about it. The Inspiration Place podcast is available on all major podcast directories, including Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and of course, iTunes. If you're listening in iTunes, all you have to do is click that button that says subscribe and you'll never miss an episode again because I don't email my list every single time I have a new podcast episode and I wanna make sure you're subscribed so you'll know when a new episode is available and you won't miss anything. All right, that's it for now. Can't wait to talk to you again next week. Same time, same place. Have an inspirational week. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course on shulmanart.com.